Tonight we'll continue with this quiz that Venerable Children gave us from Nagarjuna, and we'll start with setting our motivation for this next hour some time that we have. Years ago, Kinzer Wong, um, the person who wrote the commentary that we're studying, Kinzer Jampa came to the Abbey twice, actually, 2006 and 2008, in one of those visits, he said something that I've never forgotten, and it came up in these teachings and thought to share as a motivation. We're always so worried about who we are. and We have such strong senses of identity. And he was just cutting through all of that and explained that it's not who we are that matters. It's in this life. It's what we can do with this life. And to take the essence of this life means that we can learn to transform our minds, turn our minds into the Dharma, align ourselves with the Dharma as we live through each moment of every day, making this life uh, more harmonious, giving us the opportunity to have a series of precious human lives and eventually releasing ourselves from all of the difficulties of continually being reborn under the influence of ignorance, karma, and afflictions. So let's take this to heart and see that our time is is very precious and it's not who we are, it's what we're doing that really is going to be what matters. Who we are are just conceptions. What we're doing has a great impact. So, seeing our own situation, constant problems coming up, never really fully satisfied, and, and we know everyone around us is the same reading the news and seeing the difficulties in the world. Let's keep all sentient beings in mind as we study tonight and really see this as one step of us becoming bodhisattvas and becoming fully awakened. And then being able to be in the best position to benefit others most effectively. So, here we are. We're on quiz number seven, and we're on question number four. And this is a question that's asking about what are the trainings to describe the trainings in generosity, tranquility, and wisdom, and what are their benefits and how can you cultivate them. So, does anyone know which verse we're talking about here? 136. Maybe. What do you have for 136? 136 is a single shining act of generosity hides the flaws of a king. Likewise, an instance of greed will contradict all of his good qualities. That's apart, anyway. 
Yeah. Generosity plan. Yeah. 130, 136 uh, through 139. So I'll, um, does anyone have 139 up or shall I? Because that kind of lists the, lists the three and sums it up a little bit. There are four, really. 139 is truth, generosity, tranquility, and wisdom. A king who has these four excellent qualities will be praised by celestial beings and humans just like these four excellent dharmas. So I thought we'd do them separately and start with generosity. Thank you for reading that verse. A single shining act of generosity hides the flaws of a king. Likewise, an instance of greed will contradict all his good qualities. So do people have a sense of what it means to be training in generosity? Anyone have anything they'd like to share to start off? I guess for me I would say that um, when I watch my mind, um, I can see sometimes where just a, just a kind of a spontaneous I want to give comes. And sometimes then the second or third thought is about, oh, you know, I don't know, or whatever. But um, uh, if I just stay with that first thought, then um, it flows quite nicely. Mm -hmm. So I guess my point is that it's a process. It's not um, just all of a sudden one day, okay, I'm going to be generous. (laughs) So there's a process to it. Like getting yourself out of the way. (laughs) it's the first paramita and I think that that's because it's um it's very tied to turning our focus away from ourselves to others and it's very important that way that not so much what we give but that we learn to be concerned with what others need yeah very good Yes. Challenging. (laughs) I love this part of the commentary. If you have a habit of frequently giving to a lot of people, there's a likelihood that there are emanations of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas (laughs) among those who receive your gifts. Having received your offering, they make amazing dedication prayers for your benefit. Don't we all need that? Right. By the power of your giving your possessions and the power of the Bodhisattvas' prayers and dedications, the imprint of or potential for liberation is placed on your mind stream. So right there are two main benefits. You'd have bodhisattvas making prayers for you and helping you to become liberated. So that's a big benefit. <laughs> right. um, I was um, using generosity to try to settle my ego down a little by um, trying to give, let others take credit or others take the lead or have others succeed um, and help them and mm-hmm. try to reduce the self-centered thought a little oh, bit. Nice. That's a way to train. Yeah, very good. So, you know, when we, uh, I turned to the um, Lamar and Chimro for this, but before we do that, it's interesting, I think, what this verse says about it. A shining act of generosity hides the flaws of a king an instance of greed will contradict all of his good qualities. And you can just see that when you have interactions with people, you know. It just, people who are quite generous, it's a little easier to let little things go. Someone who have, you have a very 
you know, interaction where they're quite greedy. It's quite easy to remember that. <laughs> Sad. But I think Nagarjuna was on to something here. So right there, I found that of benefit just to recognize that, you know, wow, that is a benefit there. But in terms of the training part, I turned to the Lama Shimbo where it talks about what's the nature of generosity. It's basically this intention of a bodhisattva. He described, uh, Lama Sankapa described it as disinterested non-attachment to all your possessions in your body and motivated by this, you do physical and verbal actions of giving the things to be given. And remember, we've come across the things to be given. There's three to four. Anyone remember those off the top of their head? Material possessions. Dharma, fearlessness, and there's one more. Love, that's right. So these are the things that we want to, you know, learn to give. So uh, I thought these two parts were kind of helpful. If you're able to generate intense delight as you contemplate the many benefits of giving things away and great fear as you reflect on the faults of tight-fistedness, you know, this grabbing onto things, you'll naturally produce a generous attitude. So I saw that as quite good advice for training, you know, trying to take this delight in giving, seeing the benefits of it, seeing the you know, the faults and the disadvantages of being tight-fistedness. And one piece of advice that Chantakirti gave was for those of us who are aspiring bodhisattvas and wish to benefit the world, one easy way to start this is to practice generosity with those who are most in need. And so, you know, that's probably a fairly easy way because we see we can reduce people's suffering and was his advice. So he was kind of pointing towards the material support there primarily. So those were some things about the practice of it. But also I think we brought up the six paramitas. We're always encouraged in these to that to realize that we try to practice one of these paramitas with the other five present at the same time. So we would do that in our training ourselves to be generous as well. So we would consider the ethical conduct of giving. We would consider the patience that might involve, like maybe the people wouldn't appreciate (laughs) what you gave, or you might have to struggle to some way. The joyous effort, the joyous perseverance. And... uh, being able to give with one-pointed attention and dedicating that. They they brought it up in the thing I read uh, about being one-pointed in your dedication of your merit from your generosity. I think that's something that we can do. You know, I think that's, you know, this, the last couple of weeks have reminded me to just try to concentrate a little bit more when we make our dedications because we make them so often that you can, sometimes the mind can, not be there, but hey, this is quite important. We need to be dedicating our efforts and our steering our good energy towards our future. So I take this as a reminder. And then the wisdom side of that, you know, realizing the illusion-like nature of the giver, the gift, the action of giving. How about the benefits? Well, they say that for the karmic result in the next life or in a future life will be 
wealth to give. Right. But and that's a great benefit. But I also see that when we give, often we were are besides the gift we give. When someone gives, they give an example of giving to the person that's receiving or to other people that are around it, yeah. which may help result in them having good karma in the future, too. Yeah, you know, like role models, helping to teach others through example. Yeah, that's a lot of, I think, how we really get in touch with the beauty of generosity, not mm-hmm. by hearing someone tell us, but having seen it in our own lives mm-hmm. and been touched by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very nice. Anyone else have something about benefits that they see for generosity? It also makes the mind really happy. Yeah, the delight. It's very expansive, right. feeling in the mind, so that it fuels the wish to do it more and more and more, and yeah. get in the habit. Yeah, because actually we define generosity as taking delight in giving, so it's, it's very, you know, mental state is very pleasurable. So it's going to make you happier even now. Yeah. So temporal happiness. And actually they say that people who, um, you see, even people who are extremely selfish now but have a lot of things, they were generous in the past. So maybe they aren't able to do that now, but they're reaping the benefit now of their past generosity. So that's actually a benefit. There's a, also a sentence in the in the commentary that follows up what Venerable Sampton was saying about, you know, surely you'll be giving to Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. So having received your offering, um, by the power of your giving, your possessions, and the power of their prayers, the imprint or potential for liberation is placed on your mind stream. Right. And that's pretty potent benefit. Yeah, that's really benefit. <laughs> That's the main, uh, you know, long-term benefit that, that we'd be looking at here. So it's, um, I've been reading the, um, His Holiness and um, Archbishop Tutu's book oh, on yeah. joy. Yeah. And it was a very interesting thing that um, the neuroscientist Richard Davison was uh, sharing that there was four independent brain circuits that sort of hardwired into us. And the fourth one is generosity. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was, I was quite like, we were born to be generous. Yeah, that's sweet. <laughs> yeah. I think also when there's generosity between people, whether we're the giver or the receiver, there's a connection that really gets over the isolation that we can feel as people. Yeah. We really feel somebody might even, you know, give you something, a stranger, if you're sitting together in right. an airport or something, and you might have a little bond. So. Right, exactly. And that actually for, you know, for some people who maybe don't have a lot of connection in their life, even if it's a small connection you make with them, it can be the impact on their life. It can be huge. So connection. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it also is a good practice to demonstrate the emptiness of I and mine, because Mm -hmm. what was yours, you're giving it away, and the impermanence of those labels and the joy of not being attached to things, even mm-hmm. just letting some small thing go, you can see that how, they, how not clinging brings happiness. Right. And also then you don't have something to lose. <laughs> I mean, it's true. When you travel light, you don't have a, there's a burden of possessions and, and things like that too. Yeah. yeah. 
I think that we covered a lot of them. Oh yeah, this is one. Wealth is not, this is Asura. Wealth not given is transitory and will be gone. By giving it away, it remains a treasury. You know, because the item that you have is going to fall apart. But the actual giving it away, you've created some merit that's going to, if, especially if you dedicate it well, that's going to stay with you till full awakening. So that's worth a lot. So let's move on to the training in tranquility, how to cultivate tranquility. So this is verse 137. Anyone want to read that? It is profound to be tranquil, and for its profundity, tranquility is highly respected. From respect come glory and authority. Therefore, devote yourself to tranquility. So what do you understand tranquility to be? I think without getting into the profound levels of it, I think really being mindful of how our body, speech, and mind really create... um, well, our, our physical and verbal actions, create, whether they're positive, they create a peace and a harmony and a connectedness in our minds. But the ones that are not very skillful and they're really disturbing and destructive, to kind of relate that the mind is tranquil depending a lot on how the body and the speech work. Mm-hmm. So to kind of on a real gross everyday level, if I want to have a calm mind, if I watch the way I behave and the way that I speak, that they're very much connected. So yeah. the more agitated my mind is, if I look back to my actions and my speech, there's definitely a relationship. Yeah, a connection. And it sounds like you're pointing to tranquility as calmness and peacefulness. And really being conscious use. of reining in the, the, right. those things that are yep. obstacles. Exactly. So that is a matter of binding the senses, as they say being careful with the body, speech, and mind, where it's going, pacifying things that aren't helpful, and, you know, just being conscientious and aware. So also, um, when they talk about reining your senses in, so we usually break it down into body, speech, and mind, as Venerable was saying, and one thing... um, that I've learned a lot from Venerable Children is be careful where you go. I've never met someone who has smoked so careful into the situation she puts herself in, even after all these years of ordination. It just very, I've learned a lot from that. Um, and then also don't let your senses wander. That's kind of a physical, mental thing, both. But there's a lot of physical sides to it, like, oh, that smells good. <laughs> you know, you have the physical thing going. And your speech, we try to abandon the four non-virtues of speech and practice the opposites. So think about how um, we affect other people's tranquility by when we say, Geshe Jampa Tektroks is talking about when we do essentially idle speech, we're actually affecting others' tranquility to go in the wrong direction because Maybe people will get restless or something will come up for them or you'll incite their craving. I mean, this is a thing where we have quite an impact on others as well as ourselves. And then mentally not letting the mind wander and dwell on memories and daydreams. That that doesn't, you know, necessarily... If you think about how your day goes and just what your dream world is like, you know, it's... To me, dreaming and daydreaming and the time you spend on memories have a lot to do with each other. And uh, 
and what you're doing during the day leads you to have these kind of thoughts a lot of times, both in daydreams or in dreams. So how we're controlling our mind is quite important. So focusing inward on what's meaningful rather than worrying about the future, regretting the past, and just spinning, spinning our wheels that way, not so useful. What do you see the benefits of tranquility? I think if you have kind of an easeful balance to yourself, then there's more space in the mind to um, uh, try and be of benefit yeah. and to look outward to help others. Yeah, so you can be looking outward more. I th- it seems also like you can think better. <laughs> you can handle things better. You know, the situations that come up in both, you know, that affect you or affecting others, there's more space in the mind, as you say. We're farther away from the reptilian brain, I'm sure. <laughs> there's a one here and one back there. Why don't we start up here? So people around you will feel peaceful right. as well, and yeah. they will feel safe. Yeah. And what you have to offer will be received. Yeah, right. Yeah, we can take it in so much easier. I mean, just think about it. You know, when people are the opposite of that, you're actually kind of, kind of on guard. <laughs> it's hard to take things in. I'm repeating Venerable Pende's point. No, she was just saying it's much easier to memorize and focus on the Dharma. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anything else? All these comments reminded me that uh, one side benefit is that we will sleep better. Yeah. Because yeah. rarely do we wake up at night thinking, I was so kind today. <laughs> you know, usually we wake up thinking about the things yeah. that disturbed our mind. And yeah, exactly. Mostly it came from our side. Yeah, very good point. It seems like there's a, quite a strong element of equanimity in tranquility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's... Lack a lot of, of the benefits that people are mentioning may me lack think, of aversion, may me think lack of, of attachment. Yeah, and I think when we're off in our daydreams and stuff, we're kind of internally in our brain, in our minds, looking for drama. <laughs> yeah, some kind of craving maybe. Probably there's also a lack of indifference too. I don't, I don't, it doesn't, a tranquil mind doesn't seem to be in an indifferent mind. Right, that would maybe like ind- indifference is a near enemy to equanimity. But doesn't, that doesn't kind of work. They also talk about having a calm and dignified manner, so people naturally respect you, and then they'll help you with your projects. <laughs> For example, they might want to be around you more. <laughs> they'll pay attention to your words. They'll respect your words. Right, and that's what uh, in this verse they talk about authority, and this is the way they're kind of defining authority. Basically, that people will be receptive to you, that they'll listen to you. That's the authority they're talking about there. Venerable Children mentions that people have kind of a certain kind of vibe, kind of a peaceful manner. How about wisdom? Oh, wait, and, and also, boom, the, I think one of the main points to me was that in terms of benefiting others, you have more opportunity to benefit others. You'll be able to be, help people to move in a, in a wholesome direction easier. So let's move on to wisdom. Oh, yeah, please. 
Okay, someone also says you have less emotional reactivity and you can catch the stories that your mind is spinning. Right, yeah, more introspective awareness. Since Venerable Tarpa just brought up the word introspective awareness, that's what I was being aware of, is that that's what's missing when we talk about the training, that we need much of that in order to be able to, we need to cultivate that right. in order to subdue our senses and then to subdue our body, speech, and mind. And the way you cultivate that actually is training in mindfulness, and then that comes along as the sidekick on its own. So then that points us back to watching our body, speech, and mind, being aware of them, what we want to be doing with them, what we don't, watching our afflictions take over, and then, you know, like not allowing that. That's a work in progress, right? And then uh, moving on to wisdom. How do you train in wisdom? Should I start? <laughs> I'll start. I thought that was a pretty hard question, you know. So I turned to Lama Sankapa, and um, he says that you should contemplate the benefits of generating wisdom and the faults of not. That made sense to me. Uh, he talked about to repel the darkness of delusions, confusion. So he gave very practical advice to dispel our our confusion. He talked about the causes and that we have to make effort to do this. So, yeah, because I, I was kind of at a loss. I'd like to think about these questions first on my own, like, how do I generate wisdom? Well, usually I study, you know, and then I try to think about the things. That's what I do. But his answer was, you know, to dispel, to, he said, you do not repel the darkness of delusions, confusion, as long as wisdom's great light does not shine. But when it does, you cast away the darkness, so you must make effort to generate wisdom in whatever capacity and strength you have. And then he goes on to talk about the causes of confusion. So that, I thought it was quite practical. Relying on bad friends, laziness, indolence, oversleeping, taking no pleasure in analysis and discernment. You know, you just don't want to think about things. Just kind of like to space out a lack of interest in the variety of phenomena, you know, not interested in learning, so to speak. The pride of thinking, I know, when you don't. <laughs> Major wrong views, or being discouraged and thinking, somebody like me can never do this. I'm not capable, you know, those kind of self-defeating thoughts. So I found that kind of hap happy. And then Asura said, uh, Serve and venerate a guru worthy of trust and study to achieve wisdom. Okay, I was right on one. <laughs> Did anyone else have thoughts on that? It's kind of an interesting question, really. Yeah, please. Maybe people online. Yeah, I was just noticing what Venerable had said about that, was mm -hmm. that she said that this wisdom is not just Dharma wisdom. Mm -hmm. It's also learning to think clearly for yourself and discern good and bad, appropriate not right. appropriate, beneficial, and not. So so it's, you know, there's the, just to think about it, we always think about wisdom in terms of understanding emptiness, but there's many, 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 many kinds right. of wisdom before we come to that, and exactly. hearing, thinking come before our meditations. Right. Yeah, good point. Yeah, and describing the training, uh, in verse 138, it says, By being wise, your mind will not waver, not dependent on the opinions of others, 
You will be steadfast, kind, and not deceived. Therefore, <coughs> devote yourself to wisdom. So this goes into this whole explanation of being able to discern what's wholesome, what's unwholesome, what do we practice, what don't we practice. And that's really not just Dharma practice. It's how you live and decisions you make and things like that. And the benefit of this is that we won't be so swayed by other people who might have bad advice. because And it's, and it's not in the sense that you're solo on your own. The emphasis in here was actually that you'd be able to listen to many people but then be able to synthesize it and make your own decisions, think for yourself, make wise choices, and carry them out with confidence. So this was clearly taught not just for Dharma things, but for practical matters. Think clearly and logically, understand what's beneficial and what isn't. And I think you have to think about that. And I think as His Holiness says, taking a, kind of getting the big picture on things, it's quite helpful, many many different viewpoints. And then being able to kind of think for yourself. And if you know you can't, you know, like I, we sometimes know that we're in over our heads on something and then we want to turn to wise people to help us, to get advice. So one of the great benefits of that is being able to bear responsibility gracefully. I think that we can see that in people we know who have these kind of skills. And also another benefit of it is that just in terms of, well, not just in the Dharma, but here they're talking about specifically in the Dharma, oftentimes there's things that are pure contradictory in the Dharma. And actually, if you had more wisdom, you'd see that they aren't contradictory, but sometimes early on you don't have the picture of things and so you might think some things are contradictory that aren't it's because you're not understanding the context or the meaning the intended meaning of it and they give some examples like the presentation of the two truths or in some scriptures they'll say something is not allowed whereas in others is allowed and things like that you know uh, that takes wisdom to be able to discern sounds like you have something back there I just wanted to say that before I met the Dharma, I think I learned a lot like by trial by fire, you mm-hmm. get burned and then oops. And, then, yeah. <laughs> and it was so good to meet wiser people and who have already had the experience. It's just whether we're opening to listening, open to listening, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. So, and then wise people you can trust. Right. Like being here and hearing everyone's retreat experiences at the start, learning from those and learning how to do retreat from everyone's experience was Yeah, that's a, a great example. Wisdom. Practical. Practical example. So, uh, Lama Sankapa finishes this off that wisdom is the root of all good qualities for this and future lives. So that makes it quite a, you know, we want to go there. (laughs) Okay, we'll move on to the next question unless there's more to add, please. One more, one more. So someone says, we can also cultivate a type of wisdom in everyday life by looking at ourselves and other objects and considering that we call those objects such and such, but we just label it that. So that helps to cultivate the wisdom of Mm non-attachment. Very good. Thank you. Okay, why are, question number five, why are special friends important? What are the characteristics to look for in choosing them? This one is... uh, Verse 140, wisdom and dharma always increase in a king who consults those who are restrained in speech and pure and possess undefiled wisdom and compassion. 
So here, this one is talking about a certain kind of friend. You know, I read through this a few times to see, I don't really think they're talking about spiritual mentors here so much. They're talking more about advisors. And so, um, the did people have things that they want to say about this? Do you, did you kind of grok from the verse the different qualities that you're looking for? Well, 141 says, those who speak beneficial, beneficially are rare. Even more rare are those who listen. And more rare yet, then these are those who quickly implement something beneficial. Right. So this verse was written in reference to the king. But I found that it was nice to think about it in terms of our meeting we had today. And what we're doing here. And actually the roles that we have at the Abbey. I thought it came alive much more for me to think about maybe you're the kitchen manager on that team for a while, or maybe you're in charge of this, or maybe you're in charge of that. And then you're kind of, the community is turning to you kind of to be the advisor in a certain way, in, in some sense. You know, like, okay, like you're, you're going to facilitate this building project. You're, you're facilitating it. No one else is making those decisions, right? I mean, you do it with a team, but the community is turning to you for that. So I, I found this helpful to think about it more here than like this king back hundreds of years ago. Like, yeah, he needs this, he needs that. I found this quite helpful in just preparing for our meeting today. Um, so these different, uh, verse 140, they ex in the commentary, they expand on what are these four qualities. Their speech is honest and restrained. How'd we do today? Not too bad. Not too bad. You know? So that's a, you know, this is a characteristic uh, that you would be looking for in someone who would be a good advisor. Uh, and what would be the benefit of that? Well, they're actually not going to harm you. <laughs> they're going to help you. And uh, also, if the person, your advisor is honest and people around you are honest, they're going to actually give you the straight scoop. They're not going to kind of sugarcoat things and then you'll be left in the dark not knowing really what's going on. So that would be a very important uh, attribute, you know, why a reason why an advisor is important or a special friend. That person needs a good motivation and they have to be able to speak directly and frankly but saying things that are helpful. So you're going to receive a lot of help by having people like this around you. He, talk, he talked about the king needing friends who care about him and let him know when people aren't happy with him or when he's making a mistake and try, try to help him to fix things. So, you know, that's, I think, how, you know, when we advise each other or when we turn to people, that's what we're looking for in a lot of ways. The second thing was that such friends are content and have few desires. And really think about that. They use the word pure in the verse, but it means that they're, it's, the meaning is, is they're not looking out for themselves. They're not being self-serving. And you can imagine just in any of the roles we have here, if you are self-serving, how well it is going to go for the community. Not so well. Probably won't last too long around here. Right? <laughs> So if you have someone who's more content and uh, have few desires and can be then easier to be looking out for everyone, then it's easier to have good policy and benefit others. 
So, and also it's going to help you to have serenity when you do serenity meditation because that's one of the conditions that you need. And that's one of the things that we can work on now. Maybe we aren't going to do a shamatha retreat, but we can set up. That's one of the major conditions that we can work on now, I feel, in our environment here, is working on our contentment. The third one is wisdom intelligence, so then you can give sound advice. And the fourth was this deep wish to actually benefit others and not to be easily angered. That's huge kind of, the question here is what are the characteristics you're looking for? So, and so we, these are also the characteristics we want to develop. And, and I found this kind of helpful just in planning, you know, getting myself ready for our meeting today. Like, because I was studying this, I was like, yeah, maybe I should pay attention to this, hey? <laughs> Let me see if I can be honest and restrained and, you know, it's very practical. So, yeah, so then when we develop friendships with people like this, we're actually more likely to develop these qualities ourselves versus if you get yourself around people who are, you know, really uh, doing a lot of unwholesome things, I don't know, I hated to hear this, but one time when I was trying to adopt my nephew and I had to put him in this special school, I was kind of disheartened to hear the principal or vice principal say to me that people sink to the lowest level. That was kind of his attitude. And I was like, really? But this verse is kind of saying that in a way that when you surround yourself with people who are doing unwholesome things, you will actually start to do these things without even noticing it. And they went on quite a bit around this. They explained this. Venable's expression was, birds of a feather flock together, so choose your friends carefully, because you become like the people you hang out with. But what was what Geshe Tekchok was much more, kind of went deeper with this in the sense of, you're not going to necessarily see this you're going to slowly start changing and you might not see these changes and you might get so far down the road that you get, are so obscured that you're never going to really see it. You know, he was saying that the Lam Rim teachings tell us that it's difficult to distinguish misleading friends. They don't have horns on their heads, right? That's the expression here. hear. But, they have, but you, the way you do it is you notice the long-term detrimental effect that they have on you. But then he says, but by the way, well, what you might notice is your mind becomes harsher, more uncontrolled, more diluted. You have more destructive actions and your good qualities decrease. But then he makes the statement that, you know, you might also become blind to these negative consequences. So that was kind of a wake-up call. And then he said something that was quite, I thought, I'd just read it. It felt like a little bit of heart advice from Gussie Tekcho. At present, with all our heart, we want to practice to be excellent. We sincerely want to relinquish all that is adverse to higher rebirth and highest good and to adopt everything that is in accord with them. Since we are ordinary beings, that wish is still not stable in us and we don't have much control over our thoughts and actions. For this reason, it's especially important to keep our distance from misleading companions and associate with good friends. And he goes on to say that the great masters have composed uh, prayers about this for never even a second to come under the influence of misleading friends. So, yeah, a lot of negative results. Um, Anyone have anything they want to add? I don't think I have any more on that one. Maybe a little bit. I would just say that um, then looking at the opposite that, you know, we all come here and we all have our habits and afflictions, but staying here among each other um, 
we affect each other and we um, start developing these qualities. Yeah, exactly. So it's quite we powerful. We can see it. Yeah, it's not a simple thing. It's quite powerful. Yeah. One, I thought that the last thing he said was kind of like the most important in a way. If we can't, if we find that the, you know, the, the advisors, the wise people that we turn to, you know, as they talk about it in one of these verses, kind of like a bitter medicine or something. And it's hard for our ego, basically, you know. I notice that. I usually have to go away and think about these things and then come back later. Okay, I see what you're saying. And luckily our teacher is patient with that. But if we simply turn away because these things are unpleasant, then we're actually turning our back on the people who care about us and who are giving us good advice. And we're the ones who lose out. That's kind of the bottom line, in a way, if you think about it. So, you know, when, when we have wise advisors, we should do our best to try to take to heart. Anyone else have anything to add? I think this can, yeah, this can apply to just any friends and the Dharma friends, but I really have been thinking about it in the context of um, a spiritual mentor mm-hmm. and how we really need a sense of humility to be able to um, realize that we're going, we're, we need this advice because we don't have the wisdom they have. Exactly. And not to, well, yeah, not to let our ego get in the way that way. Right. But in, in a certain sense, to pick the right people, we need some seed of wisdom there just to be able to discern who is, is shooting us straight and who is leading us astray. Right. Yeah. It's... Yeah, and it takes wisdom for both of those. To have the humility involves some wisdom, too. I think some, it can be from previous imprints. That I see someone that's compassionate, and I may have previous imprints mm-hmm. that draw me to compassion, you know. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, that is tricky, isn't it? Luckily, in our tradition, we have teachings, too, where we can learn about the qualities of a spiritual mentor and the qualities of a student. I, I find that, and even how to learn. I love the Lamrim in that way. Like, here's how you learn. You know, like when I went to all the college I went to and the elementary school, and they never taught me how to learn. But in the Lamrim, they teach you how to learn. It's amazing. Having just done the Prabharana, this also shows me that, you know, it's, it's kind of the Buddha built this into the monastic system for us to help and guide each other right. how to both admonish one you know whatever, exactly. that, whatever better word people want to use advice. advise one another yeah. but also then how to receive that advice yeah. and to respond so you know that teaching is very clear and i think for my uh this year i was quite aware that and i think the buddha was wise to do it over three days <laughs> you know a couple of days because things are going to come up so naturally you know it gives it time yet I don't think they necessarily had rehearsals, but I bet they did, too. So they had a three-day process, too, back then. (laughs) You know, they must have, but at least two days. And so it gives us the time, because we're sentient beings. We need some time, you know. And, yeah, I find that, oh, once again, the Buddha was a good idea. (laughs) Or the tradition, however. Anything else? Okay, now we're going to my favorite question of of the ones. Uh, So this is question six. Why is contemplating our death important? What is the conclusion we should reach from doing this meditation? 
and what are incorrect conclusions. Now I'm going to open this up with some things that I always find very beneficial on this topic. And first is a quote by the Buddha where he said, Among all plowings of the fields, the autumn turning is the greatest. Among all footprints, the elephants is the greatest. Among all ideas, impermanence and death are the greatest because they eliminate all desire, ignorance, and pride of the three worlds. And then some of you know Damakusho, her uncle, uh, talked about this in a way that I I think is helpful for our practice if we take this in a bigger context. And he talks about the belief in permanence is the very first wrong view that Buddhism seeks to overturn. And the reflection on death and impermanence is the tool for accomplishing that change in perception. And this reflection is effective because it corresponds to the true facts, whereas belief in permanence cannot be supported by an honest examination of human existence. By reflecting on impermanence, you will recognize that human life is brief and that it is a folly to throw it away on pointless, energy-wasting, even harmful activities. And then he goes on, this is a different, maybe even on a different part, but anyway, it's related. It's said that it is the preliminary practices, namely the taking of refuge and reflection on impermanence, that are the profound doctrines. All the profound doctrines are given at the, be- are given at the beginning. The advanced practices are just, are just natural consequences of those profound insights and the reor- re- reorientation of mental energies which occur at the preliminary stages. And then this is restated again in another place. There is a saying that of the profound preliminary practices and the esoteric advanced practices, It is the deep teachings that are given first. Without gaining the realizations and being truly affected by these preliminary practices, there cannot be any advanced realizations. I always find this helpful uh, because it puts things in a uh, more proper perspective about what we're doing and the foundation. The profound practices, you know, these are given early. These are like reorientations. Why? Because we have these four distortions, right? Think, thinking things that are impermanent or permanent, things that are impure or pure, things that are suffering or in the nature of dukkha or in the nature of happiness, and things that are selfless have a self. And this is the, this first one, this, this conception that we have of things being permanent causes so much injury and we, we have it in a twofold way, as we know. The coarse, there's a coarse impermanence and there's a subtle impermanence. And we have problems with these. The coarse impermanence is actually referring to our death. And we're in denial about this, right? So we have this very thought, I will not die. That is a reflection of this, our perverted view of, of permanence, right? Everyone has the idea that death will come later. So we're just carrying this around all the time. Each passing day we think, I will not die today. I will not die today. If we think at all about it, right? And we can cling to that thought till the moment of death. And I'm, we've heard enough stories to know that's actually true. 
possible. So if you have an obstruction of this attitude, then you're never going to bring the remedy to mind, right? And so you'll continue to think that you're just going to remain because you're just stuck in this idea of permanence. You're not going to get there. So as long as you have this attitude, what are you going to spend your time doing? You're just going to think about how to be happy in this life and to get away from suffering in this life alone. You're not going to, you're just going to think, I need this, I don't need that. It's, you're all, you're setting yourself up to just think about this life. And so that's where they talk about these, as for person who has the Buddhist worldview, they talk about the drawbacks of not con doing this contemplation, right? The six drawbacks. You won't remember the Dharma. You'll only be concerned about the enjoyments of this life, right? Even if you remember the Dharma, you won't really practice it because you don't think you're going to die soon. We all know how, we, how easy it is to procrastinate. It's a little easier here because we have a schedule, right? But even, even when you practice, number three, you won't practice purely or properly, right? Because we're like, mm. uh -huh. <laughs> your practice will lack persistence and seriousness. And you'll preclude yourself from liberation because you'll get in all kinds of non-virtuous actions because you're so attached to things, right? The eight worldly concerns are just like running our lives. So then you die with regrets. Those are the six difficulties that if you don't do this. And uh, the next book we're going to study on this Thursday night is one by Dan Perdue. And he died, uh, I think it was 2014. In 2014, uh, I don't know. I he was in. I just read that he was in college in the 60s. So I don't know. But anyway, he wrote. He had a lot of Buddhist friends, right? And he wrote to his friends something to the effect of, "We have. We're carrying around this bag of gold. Like our precious human life is this like this bag of gold, but it's got like a a leak, and it's just." continually this gold we're letting it continually leak out that's what his advice was one of the last things he wrote his friends before he died he knew he was going to die because he was fighting something so you know this is kind of like a friendly wake-up call to us so you know actually in uh, this text it seems to me like in verse, like, say, 143, like how, but how did the Buddha, how did Nagarjuna teach this to the king? How did he bring this about? He actually brought, he thought, he taught, turned him to death, but he also turned him to the things of this life, the impermanence of things of this life, too. So in verse 143, he said, You should always reflect upon the impermanence of life, health, and political power. That way you will, with true effort, strive uniquely to practice the Dharma. So he basically, you know, helped him to see that all these things that are going well for you now, your kingdom and whatever it is, things that are going well, are all going to change. They aren't going to last. And, you know, you also are going to die. Your health is going to change. Your political power, all these things are subject to change and disintegration, like a water bubble that is, like, gone. You can be gone in a minute. So he suggested, you know, well, what, when, what did he say then, you know, Keeping this in mind, put all your effort into practicing the Dharma. But my question to you is why? Why? Why would you? Why would that be? If, if you're, you know that you're confronted with death, why would you? Why would the solution be to think about the Dharma? 
because he's giving him like he's to me it's like you should always reflect upon the impermanence of life health and political power that way with true effort you will strive and you know strive uniquely to practice the dharma well that's only true with a certain worldview a lot of people can be aware that their health is going to go power is going to change and that they're going to die but it might not tell them i need to practice the dharma it might not be so clear well go ahead um, we were doing we were doing this meditation yesterday um, Good. so that's why it's fresh in my mind <laughs> um in that um part of that meditation has to do with the fact that the, the only thing that we can take with us when we die is the dharma Right. Because friends, relatives, money, possessions, uh, well, um, power, it's, it's all left behind. Right. And so um, the meditation was, one of the questions was, why should we spend time in cultivating the things that we're not taking with us at the expense of the actual thing that we can carry with us exactly. into the next life? Exactly. That's what's going to help you then. But I don't, you know, that's not so clear to everyone. I mean, it has to be spelled out, I think. It's kind of like when I saw the cadavers, you know, it wasn't clear to me that the body wasn't beautiful after spending all this time with cadavers until I learned it from the Buddhist worldview. The foulness of the body didn't really come across to me, you know, after... It's a similar thing in my mind. So we don't want to be complacent about this. We need to make our lives meaningful. So, um, this part, I broke this question up. How did I break it up? Oh, why is it, the first part, we're, I'm just kind of on the first part of the question, why is contemplating our death important? One thing that I thought is important is how we're going to die, you know, what it's going to be like. And in uh, Transforming Adversity into Joy and Courage, Kendra Jampa talks about what happens with the different levels of practitioners, right? The advanced practitioner, they can face death happily, you know, because a lot of people have a fear of death. Remember when one of our friends who lived near here was passing away? You know, and I'm sure it's not unique. <laughs> so they have, they have their practice from their merit and their prayers. They actually are going to be able to control their rebirth and what kind of family they grow in they are reborn in and they don't they aren't in the situation of taking rebirth out of control just being controlled by disturbing like um, afflictions and karma right so in that way they can die happily and this is what Milarepa said he said previously I had to experience death and rebirth without choice under the control of disturbing attitudes and karma my mind was always distressed about this and so out of distress I involved myself in the Dharma more and more I saw the way things are and became an Arya. Therefore, I no longer fear a death controlled by disturbing attitudes and karma, and at long last can relax. That was actually one of his big motivations. And then the intermediate level practitioners, they have created a lot of strong karma to be reborn in a pure land or to have a precious human life. And so, you know, they have something to look forward to. They're still controlled by afflictions and karma, but they at least have gotten that far. And then ordinary practitioners, 
they can die without regrets because they know that they've done, they've lived their life well, purified things, abandoned negativities as much as they could, practice positive acts. So then there's no regret at the time of death. And His Holiness says, I have no doubt that the force of serious training during life, complemented by pure ethical conduct, altruistic intention, and some understanding of emptiness will be beneficial when death comes. That's like what you were saying. We'll, we'll be prepared. That's the reason why we do this meditation. That's the next question, in a sense. What is the conclusion we should reach from this meditation? And first I wanted to say, well, what is the meditation? The mindfulness of death. And so how do we describe that? Somebody want to describe that? What conclusions and... I'm ready to do this, I guess. Go ahead. The three conclusions are, I need to practice the Dharma, I need to practice the Dharma now, and I need to practice the pure Dharma. Yeah, right. Yeah. So those are the conclusions. So the, the not everyone's necessarily familiar with our, what we call the nine-point death meditation. So it has, uh, this is the way we cultivate mindfulness of death. In our tradition, we have it set out called the nine-point death meditation. So it first has this root uh, that the content you first contemplate that death is definite, and then three, like, reasons, or, and then you come to a conclusion or a decision from that. So you can't avoid death. Your lifespan's always getting shorter, and there's not that much time, even when you're alive, to practice if you look at your day, right? So that, knowing that your death is definite, and this is your situation, this leads you to this decision that, yeah, I need to practice, Right? And then the second one, which is the hardest to really realize, is the contemplation that the time of death is uncertain. Why? Our lifespan in the world is indefinite. That's, you can see, there's many, many causes of death and not that many causes of life. And then at the time of death, um, it's unknowable. But why is that? Because the body is fragile. You just, you kind of don't know when you're going to go, essentially. So, yeah, you can't know when you're going to die. You can't say you're going to be here tomorrow with any certainty. No one can say that. It's not reasonable to say that. So then that leads you to the second decision or conclusion. I must practice now, right? And then the third is that the contemplation that the time of, at the time of death, nothing helps except for these uh, Dharma practices where we learn how to work with and transform our mind. Why? Because... Friends aren't going to be helpful, all your wealth isn't going to be helpful, and your body is not going to be helpful at that point. So then you come to this third decision of knowing that only Dharma practice will benefit at death, and so not to be holding on to attachment to anything, the things of this life. And that last one, you know, I mean, that, thir- that second point is the hardest one for us to realize. But I think... Um, it's so logical, but our mind just can't make it sink. I mean, we just know that there's no way you can say, you know, you don't know if you're going to be alive for years, months, days, or minutes. None of us know that. There's no way you can say. And there's nothing you have, riches, power, fame, any of the things that you're attached to. None of that, you know, whether you're a fast talker or <laughs> great debater or the President of the United States or anything, whatever, none of those things actually are going to make any difference when death comes. 
So then they say that the great practitioners always consider death to be right in front of them as if it's there in the next moment. So they'll say, they'll consider, if I die, what will happen next? Now I think that's kind of like a thought that is strong that can help us to try to make this more, both have the recognition and what we should be thinking about from it, you know, just boil it down. If I die, what will happen next? It kind of works pretty well when, you're, when your mind is afflicted. And you just say, if I die now, what's going to happen next? And you think, maybe I'll let go of this affliction. <laughs> not, not always, but it's helpful. And we don't, you know, Kinzer Jampatekcho, uh, growing up where he did in Tibet, doesn't have any problems saying it will be a f- dark and frightful area, will fall into an unhappy rebirth, and what kind of misery and pain will we face? The downward spiral of more and more miserable situations and our good opportunity we have now, we have our health, we have our intellect, we have the, this rare opportunity to practice, and that's where we have the chance to prepare. That's the whole, the bottom line of this meditation, is we do it so that we can prepare for death. So, so the, those are the kind of conclusions. Does anyone have any other conclusions? I think another thing that's uh, helpful to the mind is that when we're um, ill or um, you know having difficulty with the body, that we also bring that into our awareness that um, you know this is just another step toward death mm-hmm. and you know I have uh, options on how I'm going to place my mind to this experience to my sensations yeah exactly it's like a training yeah preparation <laughs> practice that's what the actually before you go on in the in the um, in the Pali Canon in the suttas on the contemplation of feeling, the Buddha gave a couple teachings to monks who were sick. And that's basically what he told them to do was continue to practice. Just keep practicing. You're sick, continue to practice. Don't let your mind go to all these unhealthy places. Continue your practice. Yeah. One of the things that I've been thinking about is um, to have the idea that I'm just a guest, mm. you know, on this earth, in the abbey, in this body, and just that, like today's discussion, you know, all this thing about furniture and all that, and if you're just a guest, this is not an issue. Yeah. <laughs> you have... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's... Uh, and it helps me to not look at some of these things with a lot of emphasis because if you're a guest you're not going to be you know fixing air conditioning and buying stuff to put in and yeah because you're going to leave right exactly that's what Geshek Dorji Damdol said exactly when he was here too yeah yeah really it's very wise and we are the guest house of the body.
Someone online says, I think it helps us appreciate what we have going for us, appreciate our aspirations and fortunate conditions and stop wasting time on self-pity. Yeah. And from my side, one thing I was thinking about too is sometimes I have trouble just thinking about different beings being my mother, like the turkeys or whatever. And then if I think, wow, if I died right now and I wasn't mindful, I could be immediately reborn <laughs> as a turkey. Yeah. That being will be my mother, period. <laughs> like any being around here could be my mother in the next moment. Then mm. it helps me to wake up, be kinder as well. How about incorrect conclusions? That was the third question of this one. What are the incorrect conclusions that a person might come to. This is, I think, quite interesting. What would that be? Panic? Freak out. Freak out. That would be an incorrect conclusion. Right. Or, uh, like, despondency, and there's no sense to do anything because I'm going to die. A big one that I see a lot in, you know, all the movies and the shows that I see that when people know that they're going to die, a lot of them spend a lot of money. They just indulge themselves. Oh, yeah. Blow everything. And, yeah. you know, and then you have a bucket list and you do all these things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of a friend of mine before she passed away. She... um had cancer, and it wasn't really treatable, although she went through all this stuff at Fred Hutch, and then kind of just realized, okay. So she had a few years, actually, and she up and down, and she took this big, long bike trip, because it's something she always wanted to do, but what I remember is that the way she did it, it always surprised me, people live their lives so differently. She had all these bills to pay. And I think she got all this life insurance money, and instead of paying her bills, she bought this really expensive bicycle and took this big long trip. And I remember thinking, shouldn't you be paying your bills? <laughs> I don't think her perspective was quite the same. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah, she eventually died from that. But... Well, do people have other things? Yeah, please. I organized some thoughts, but I'd rather hear yours. Just a comment online related to bikes. <laughs> Someone just said, when I ride my bicycle on the highway touring, I find myself reciting mantras and expecting death. Oh, yeah. I would too. <laughs> I gave that up. <laughs> yeah. Any other incorrect conclusions? You're getting freaked out to the point where you think that you become obsolete and that just... Um, nothing carries on after death and just have, have as much fun as possible kind of what yeah, become a hedonist why not yeah. I kind of took this question starting trying to figure out what was the conclusion that you were having and then what was your emotional response well, that's how I answered it so I was thinking well if you're going to die anyway what we do in this life doesn't matter you know you could have that thought that would be an incorrect conclusion and then you could be def- have this defeatist attitude or go hedonistic or get depressed or have despondency because nothing matters. You know, you're, you've come to this conclusion that nothing matters. There's no reason to prepare for anything because it doesn't matter. Or you could come to the conclusion, we're going to die anyway, so there's nothing to be done. And that, I think, would lead me to panic and fear this kind of... Uh, 
we're trying to develop a sense of alarm that gives us energy to make preparations, sometimes called a wisdom fear, but I think Venerable might prefer the word alarm. Um, but if you didn't think that there was really anything to be done, that might, yeah, that fatalistic kind of attitude, that might make me panic. Or you might have an aversion to thinking about death, so you wouldn't even think about it. You wouldn't, you just distract. Yeah, one life view. Yeah, yeah, I'll just finish these and then, and then you could have the denial of death, like you just don't go there. And that's what a lot of people do. And so then you probably are going to suppress or have aversion to thinking about it or talking about it, or you're going to suppress any emotions that would be associated with that. Or you might think that death will happen later, <laughs> and that my emotional response with that would be like procrastination and laziness then, just manana. It's not going to happen today, so I'll do it tomorrow. Or you could think that the mind stream ends at death, which is what you spoke about. Yeah. That reminded me of um, a line in Sogi Rinpoche's book, Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, where he says, the reason people are afraid of death is because we don't know how we exist. And that ties in with um, impermanence as the first aspect of truth of suffering. And if we could really understand how we exist as a continuity of mind and and taking, you know, like a guest in the guest house, just a continuity of mind temporarily in a guest house and right. moving on, yeah. then um, it would alleviate so much of that fear and misunderstanding exactly. and, and, and confusion about what to do in our yeah. life. One of my bad jokes is that the Catholics marry them and the Buddhists bury them. <laughs> we have a lot of teachings about death that can help you prepare for death. <laughs> it's a bad joke. Catholics have pretty good weddings. <laughs> So coincidentally, this week uh, when we had the class with Venerable Heng Ching, she was saying that she's had everything, and the only thing that she wants now is a good death. And then she was reflecting on, look at how the Buddha is in his Parinirvana. Can we do that at the time of death? In that kind of posture, in that kind of, you know, that tranquility, that stability. And then she was saying, um, comparing it to other religion where death is on a cross with stuff, you know, nails mm. through it, and how violent that is mm. versus how the Buddhists see it. Mm. And the other thing that she commented on um, was the language that we use in Chinese when we talk about little children and like you would you use it unconsciously um, like when a, a child is naughty Literally, you translate it as bad death. Oh, really? Yeah. So it it didn't really occur to me until like she was talking about it, and yeah, I think even in English, we also use death in that kind of some of these phrases. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, it, yeah. it's um, it's a it's a reflection of how unconscious we are of death. Yeah, that you throw it around like like yeah, that. Right. Yeah, scared to death. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. So it was it was interesting for me to like you know all this language that I'm so used to yeah, that right. refers to death in this kind of dismissive way right and but it's important and and she was reflecting that back to me because I think you know she she sees herself as you know preparing for that yeah yeah wise
linked to that, someone online says, some people think that death is a punishment and something that they are going to defeat. And if not, then they are a failure. Let's do quickly the, the seventh question. I didn't, uh, it, it relates to this one. Some, uh, it's seven is, how does remembering our mortality relate to abiding in good ethical conduct and making wise decisions in life? It's kind of clear to all of us, but somebody like to elucidate it? Well, seeing the, that the karma we create is way more important than the worldly concerns that we're caught up in when we're making you know, that you know not to um not to be caught up in eight worldly concerns producing negative karma and like somebody was saying earlier you know all our things and stuff that we can't take with us right. when the karma is what does come with us right. Right. And so our actions what is the cause of happiness virtue you know, it kind of comes down to that in a way. And so even beyond, uh, yeah, it, it will affect our future lives. And that so, you know, if you do this meditation properly, thinking about impermanence and thinking about the inevitability of death, it actually will lead your mind if, to a more virtuous life, actually. If you have the the view, you know, you have to have I think I think you have to have a little bit of the view, and that allows you to take more control over your life, really. And so, with that in mind, doesn't it seem a little easier to kind of let go of the small stuff? You know, you know, when you say this often in the morning when you lead the motivations, when uh, for the thirty-five Buddha practice, you know, I didn't die last night. <laughs> you know. And so that, you know, kind of wakes us up. And then when you have that kind of thought in mind, it's a little easier to let go of, oh, I just don't like this little whatever, you know. So it's, if you don't have those kind of thoughts ever, it's a little easier to just kind of indulge the self-centered thoughts that come up incessantly. And just, why not indulge them? You have no... You have nothing combating them necessarily. They come up quite easily. If you don't see that that those are unwholesome and going to lead to unhappiness, if you don't have this kind of the Buddhist worldview or whatever your ethical system is, then you know you don't have the you don't have the the remedy. Essentially, you just think about this life. And also the verse here says, seeing that you will definitely die and that when you, when dead, you suffer from your negativity, do not engage in any negativity, even for the sake of temporary pleasures. <laughs> this is where Venerable Children's commentary was spot on. This is the hard part here, the temporary pleasures. This is where we kind of don't quite make it, right? We, we want to get rid of all of our negativities, but we often opt for the immediate temporary pleasure. <laughs> Yeah. And why is that? Because we actually don't see. It's the next verse. In some cases, the dire result of negativity is not observed. In other cases, the dire result is observed. If there is comfort in one, why do you not fear, have no fear of the other? I find that verse really hard to understand. The basic idea is that 
just because you don't see the results, you're not going to concern yourself, you know? It's kind of that simple. It's like, you're only, kind of like, do you have to do every negative action in the world and suffer the result before you figure out? Or could you make some logical leaps, you know? Like, do you have to try every kind of, remember that time? Do you have to try every brownie in Seattle to see which one is the best? Or could you just maybe assume <laughs> that they aren't really going to ever satisfy what you're envisioning? Remember that night? Yeah, so, yeah, trying to learn from our experience. Uh, using wisdom instead, not having to see the results. Because we aren't, we aren't going to necessarily see those kind of things.